listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Today, we're going to look at the latest on single-payer healthcare organizing among nurses and what it would mean for nurses to take the profits out of healthcare provision. But first, the news. Once again, the United Auto Workers have suffered a loss at the Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee. What's happening, and why does the union keep foundering attempting to organize in the South? I talked to friend of the show Chris Brooks of Labor Notes, who is from the area and was on the ground with the workers during both campaigns. Chris, what just happened in Chattanooga with the UAW at the Volkswagen plant? Unfortunately, it's, it's more bad news. Um, the UAW now has a string of losses to their name. Um, you know, they ran an election at Volkswagen in 2014, which they narrowly lost. They lost an election at Nissan in Mississippi in 2017, at Fuyao, Ohio, you know, in Ohio in 2017. And now they have just, again, lost an election at Volkswagen. Um, it's a 1,700-member unit, and the final count was 833 no to 776 yes. So a margin of 57 votes. <sighs> so what did, I guess the union think was going to be different this time than in 2014? So, you know, I just use the 57 number a lot of people have. I think that the more um, useful and interesting number is 1,000. So the number of, according to the many workers that I spoke to on the organizing committee and that were activists in the plant, the, the number of, of, of their co-workers that they had assessed at the yes vote was over 1,000. They lost something like 25% of their support yeah. by the time they actually had an election. Um, so I think that the UAW went into it thinking, if we file for an election and we get a quick turnaround on it, if it happens in just a few weeks, then the employer and the anti-union groups are going to have a limited window in which to respond, and we can hopefully get this thing done. Unfortunately, that you know that did not happen. The Trump Labor Board was capable of stalling this out for about nine weeks. Um, yeah. You know, I think people can question whether or not that should have been expected in our current political environment. And in that time, um, there was a very intense anti-union campaign waged against these workers by Volkswagen, their employer, yeah. by the state, you know, government, and by um, a number of, uh, you know, uh, dark money astroturf groups that were spending tens of thousands of dollars uh, to convince the community that this would lead to the plant closing. So, what was different about the way the company approached the election this time? Yeah, it was totally night and day, right? So in 2014, the company was ostensibly neutral. So they right. signed an election agreement with Volkswagen, they actually, or with UAW. They actually invited UAW organizers into the plant in 2014 to speak to workers. And they said, look, you know, we want to form the first German-style works council in the United States here, and we have to do that um, through a collective bargaining agreement with the union, and the UAW is uh, the best one to do that. But that all changed in 2015. So folks might remember that uh, in 2015, the Dieselgate scandal broke. Yeah. So Volkswagen was found to install cheating devices or software on 11 million so-called clean diesel vehicles mm -hmm. um, where they could pass emissions tests, but they, in actuality, were pumping out toxic fumes up to 40 times the legal limit in countries all across the world. So the, the company's stock sank by like 40% in the first week. They've been fined over $30 billion, you know, from countries around the world uh, cumulatively. And uh, corporate executives have been um, uh, charged uh, in this in Germany. They're you know they're actually being indicted currently. So this this was this was a turning point I think for Volkswagen where they decided to go anti-union. They you know the Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga provides the lowest pay and benefits of any automaker in the country, and I think that they really wanted to maintain that environment. 
2015, they hired the notorious union-busting law firm Littler Mendelssohn and started fighting the union. So fast forward to today, what happened was is they ran just kind of the standard anti-union campaign that you would expect, which is like still monstrous and terrible. They they had um, supervisors handing out flyers on the floor saying that you know they would potentially close the plant or could close if they voted in a union. They were harassing workers who were trying to wear stickers or buttons. Yeah. They called uh, security on, on, on activists that were handing out flyers in front of the plant. They had captive audience meetings with the CEO in which he said that the he insinuated that the union was responsible for uh, the closing of the Volkswagen plant in Westmoreland, Pennsylvania in 1988 and said the same thing could happen here in Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also tried to play it nice. They said, look, we can change. We can do all these things better. They started to let workers wear shorts. They promised to clean the bathrooms. They started like, cooling the plant earlier in the day. Mm-hmm. They got rid of some uh, unpopular supervisors. So all that taken together, you, you see like this is like the, the general range of tactics that we typically see employers use um, in order to defeat a union drive. In particular, one of the things, and we saw this a little bit last time, but more intensely this time, um, the involvement of elected officials in this whole anti-union campaign. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so one of the wildest moments of the, of the campaign, I mean, it's really kind of unprecedented, was that Volkswagen coordinated with Tennessee Governor Bill Lee to have him personally come to the plant unannounced, in secret. Um, no journalists were allowed in, into the plant. They shut down the line and they forced all the workers to attend a meeting where he made his anti-union views known. So Bill Lee is a millionaire, runs a large non-union um, plant in Middle Tennessee. Um, and, you know, uh, he, he directly involved himself in this campaign. So, so here is the world's largest automaker bringing in the most powerful political uh, you know, uh, uh, entity in the state, the governor, to tell their workers, you know, we don't want you to have a union. And I think that that, um, that, was a, that had a tremendous impact. It's hard to imagine it didn't. Um, you know, and beyond Bill Lee, too, we also had the, the representatives for that area, State Senator Bo Watson, in-house representative Robin Smith and the Tennessee state government, who were saying that incentives tied to, a, to an upcoming plant expansion that would add a thousand jobs and the production of a new electric vehicle um, would be um, put in jeopardy if workers vote in the union. So they were very clearly saying, look, if you make this decision to unionize, we're going to potentially, um, you know, uh, make some decisions that are going to result in job loss in the plant. Yeah. yeah, and so you get politicians threatening their own constituents, you get people essentially threatening capital strikes, you get all of this in a country where, like, theoretically at least, the law of the land still says our policy is to encourage worker organization. Yeah, well, I think the lie has been put to that. You know, I mean, so like Bloomberg wrote that um, Nikki Haley in South Carolina was Boeing's uh, best union buster. Oh, yeah. We saw the same thing from Mississippi Governor Gene Bryant in the Nissan Drive. And I think what folks really need to understand is that these, the way we think about incentives needs to change. Like typically we're like, oh, incentives are just part of the neoliberal project of providing public subsidies to private corporations to enrich them. And that's true. Mm-hmm. But it's also about creating a political commitment between these companies and these politicians to foster a non-union low-wage environment in the South, and then they specifically weaponize those incentives. So they tell workers and they tell the community, if you step out of line and try to organize, we're going to withdraw support from the state for this company, and that will be the reason why the company will then not expand and and more jobs won't be created. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in all of the Volkswagen anti-union videos, they tried to make sure to highlight how the company came in after the 2008 Great Recession um, and how important employment is and how, you know, even though this is the lowest paying job in the auto industry, you know, making $16 an hour starting out is still a really good wage for blue collar workers in Chattanooga. Um, So I think they really tried to drum up this fear. And so it's just exactly what you said, right? So the state is basically saying, like, we're going to work with companies and we're going to institute a capital strike if workers organize, which 
totally bonkers, totally bonkers that they're threatening their own constituents, their own communities to discipline them, to maintain this environment. So when we think about these instru- these incentives, these giveaways, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, thinking about the Amazon business, but all of it, one of the things that they're also in many of these places, you know, they're arguing when they're giving the incentives away that these are going to be good jobs, these are going to be good jobs, and you see the complete lie of this being turned around here, and like, it's actually, there's no carrot, it's all stick. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the good jobs narrative is really important to question. So like I said, you know, if this is a this is a good job in the sense of like people are paid relatively well as a blue collar worker in Chattanooga. Like they kept on drumming up like, oh, you're making so much above the average pay right. here in the area. Right. Um, but the, but, but I, I, I interviewed 17 workers for this one um, report on on injuries in the plant. And every single one of them said injuries are, are one of the top three, if not the top issue in the plant. I interviewed multiple people, like five or six in their early 30s who have had multiple surgeries, some of which are permanently disabled for life. Yeah. None of them saw Volkswagen as a, as a job that they were going to retire from. Yeah. None of them even said that they thought that they would be working at Volkswagen in 10 years, that their bodies literally physically would not make it. Yeah. So these are folks who are saying like, look, you know, I got this job and it provided me with a lifestyle, you know, a, um, a way of living that I didn't have previously. I have a mortgage now. I have a kid. My family is like, you know, I'm trying to provide for them. And I know that I can't last in this job and I have to stick at it, you know, stick with it until um, until my body just breaks down. Yeah. And there was no real conversation around this when Volkswagen came in. There's no conversation about tying these jobs to attrition rates and thinking about why if it's such a good job, there's such enormous turnover in the plant, why there are so many temp jobs, um, mm-hmm. why, you know, how many workers' complaints are coming out of it. None of that is, you know, all of that was taken off the table because yeah. the, the government doesn't see itself as having the role to play of, of, of you know, helping to negotiate these kinds of conditions and standards in an industry that we're subsidizing so heavily. Yeah. And you have to remember, when we brought in Volkswagen, um, and, 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 uh, and, you know, when we, when we made the deal with them in 2008, we, we agreed to give them the, um, the largest taxpayer handout to a foreign automaker mm-hmm. in the history of the country at the time. It was yeah. just an enormous sum of money, over half a billion dollars. And so the last thing I want to ask you before I let you go is um, you talk about in your piece at The Nation about this sort of the, you know, the proposals for work ca- works councils, how Elizabeth Warren is talking about, you know, workers on boards. Um, Bernie Sanders made this proposal with the Walmart workers. Um, you know, what does this show us realistically about how we have to think about the power of, you know, maybe state imposed worker representation on boards and the limits of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the UAW was really trying to leverage the power of German unions, um, you know, which have half the seats on the board of Volkswagen um, that, you know, are supposed to have all this intense power in Germany. And that just didn't play out. We don't see that, right? Um, they were not capable of reigning in this, this company. It was really embarrassing um, about, you know, the week before voting was to begin, the Global Works Council at Volkswagen and the head of CG Metall all sent letters to the Volkswagen workers saying like, oh, you know, there's no, the company's neutral. It's neutral, like, and it's promised to remain neutral. And the entire time, the company never stops this incredibly hostile anti-union campaign happening in the plant. So it's like, you know, the company was lying to the to the union representatives in Germany, and, and they weren't facing up to reality, and there was nothing that they could do about it. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, it just really made them look, like, toothless, in effect. Yeah. So I, you know, I think, again, like, you know, just taking a step back and looking at what's happening around the country where we're seeing labor being revitalized, not because people are, like, getting folks elected to boards, it's because they're they're looking to where labor has always held its power, which is their ability to withdraw our labor. So yeah. from the West Virginia teacher strike to the Vox Media walkout, um, you know, we're seeing where people are standing up and sticking together and taking collective action and that that's the basis for labor to be able to actually have strength and win. 
That was Chris Brooks of Labor Notes, and you will find links to Chris's writing on the Volkswagen campaign at the Descent Magazine website, descentmagazine.org. Sometimes it feels like the gig economy is the 500-pound gorilla of labor law, impossible to rein in and slowly overtaking huge swaths of the workforce. But as we watch our streets get overrun by Uber cars and independent contractors replacing staff at corporate offices, some lawmakers are trying to rein in the gig economy's most precarious and unstable jobs by changing the definition of work. In California, the legislature is moving toward passing the country's most comprehensive effort yet to close the legal loopholes that gig economy companies have exploited to exclude their workers from the formal category of employee that allows them to skirt regulations and taxes. California's AB5 bill would create a more expansive definition of employment to include the types of workers who are currently often labeled as independent contractors. It would set a single standard for determining employment status based on a worker's level of independence from the firm, whether they do additional work outside the firm, and whether that outside work is performed within the same trade. I talked to Saba Wahid, an old colleague of mine from the Urban Justice Center, now research director at the UCLA Labor Center. She talked about what the bill might change for gig workers across California and maybe in the nation as a whole. So AB5 is a bill here in California, and it puts together something they're calling the ABC test, which is to figure out if someone is an employee, you know, where they work for the company, or if they're an independent contractor, which means that they are a business um, that is contracting with the company. And what it does is it basically puts forward these three criteria. So the first one is, you know, was is the person free from the company's control? So, you know, does the company do things that, you know, sets the wages or um, tells the person how they should be doing their work or when they should be doing their work? So that's the first thing. Then the second thing it does is, is the work that the independent contractor do doing, is it central to the company's business? You know, so if you are a... Um, so, you know, in the gig economy. So if you are, you know, if you are a taxi business and you're hiring taxi drivers, are they independent contractors? And then the third is um, that the person has some kind of independent business within that industry. You know, so you're, you're a plumber, you own a plumbing business, you are an independent contractor. The big thing about this is that it just sets up clearer but also stricter standards of proof um, for what you know, how you're supposed to classify this. And there's just like a range of professions out there that have, you know, kind of swam around in this gray zone because the test used to be a lot longer. It was more like 10 points. And um, you might have one, but you don't have the other, and you sort of have this one. And so it was it was a lot easier to put someone into the independent contractor, though most likely they were probably an employee and there's financial reasons for this because if someone's an independent contractor, it means that you're not paying, you know, for um, their job costs. You don't have to insure minimum wage. You don't have to pay overtime. You don't have to provide benefits. They're not protected under, you know, um, health and safety. And so all of these things. So there's there's definitely a financial incentive around the independent contractor that could, you know, push for that classification over an employee. Right. So who are the major sectors of workers 
who would be most affected by this. And I guess uh, I think when most people think of gig economy, they think Uber and Lyft. But um, are there other um, categories of, of workers who, um, you know, are for whatever reason currently uh, classified as independent contractors um, that really should be employees? So, yeah, so Uber, it's like the gig economy is probably the biggest. And then within that, you get a, lo- a lot of different workforces. So you could have Uber and Lyft drivers, but you could also have, you know, the delivery drivers like the Uber Eats or the DoorDashes to the um, the Amazon flex workers, you know, who are doing, you know, the, the kind of gig part of the delivery services. Um, so all of those. But then there could be, you know, the there like um there could be other sectors like nail salon workers for example or exotic dancers or um you know there's a couple of industries where it's you know some of the workers themselves have kind of come out and also you know talked about how they're being misclassified port port truckers um yeah so there's there's a bunch there's a range of industries where this could have a very big impact and so um Basically, oh, and oh, oh, yeah. go ahead. Oh, oh, and then there, there's actually already exemptions that have been put into the um, legislation uh, that, it, and they're more of the professionals like doctors and dentists and lawyers and things like that, and actually hairstylists. They've already been exempted from the bill. Okay. Um, and uh, just, you know, <laughs> out of pure self-interest, um, would, say, freelance writers and other independent sort of media workers be classified under this? Because I know that California, this is a huge sector of the economy, right? I would think that they would be um, for the very <laughs> three reasons that we talked about. Um, and that all seems to apply to um, freelancers, freelance, right. I mean, sorry, to journalists. So there are probably workforces where currently the majority of workers, um, I mean, I guess rideshare is a really obvious example, right? But that could be for if you have these companies that employ a huge number of, say, drivers who are considered non-employees, right? Um, this could be, um, this could have a massive impact, I guess. Um, um, you know, just yeah. even something like making them eligible for the minimum wage would be probably like a huge, um, you know, huge sector of the economy that you're capturing. Absolutely. And, you know, the rideshare is, they're all classified as independent contractors. But, you know, for example, we did that nail salon study and a third, and, you know, it included more than California, but then, you know, 30% of the workers there were classified as independent contractors. And then the national rate is 10. So it's like, oh, wow, like three, it's three times that. But there's an industry where um, some people are employees and you know it's more of a hybrid thing and some people are independent contractors but right. there's some concern about like that high rate of independent contracting right, right. um and then are they you know is this again is it a way to evade some of the the work protections and cost or is it actually you know does it pass those kind of the three tests and so you know that's another industry you'll see this would definitely impact and make people kind of check their, you know, check their statuses a little more carefully. Um, so has it passed this? It hasn't passed the Senate yet. Is that right? No. Okay. So it passed the Assembly. It's going to the Senate. And so are the chances of this reaching the governor's desk pretty good at this point? Uh, it seems like it's pretty good. I mean, it's definitely, 
good enough that Uber and Lyft wrote this joint letter last week, you know, an opinion, like, please don't include us in this bill. And I could imagine something like that would only happen if this wasn't, if this isn't like a real viable thing that's about to happen. Right. Um, to Just to clarify, I mean, these are all issues that have been kicking around for a while. It's just that, like, I, I feel like a lot of the um, issues around independent contracting and misclassification, they've sort of been sorted out in court. But I guess this would sort of preempt a lot of those challenges by just drawing a, just setting up a sort of a bright line test. It would, absolutely. And a lot of the, even the court ones, like, you know, for example, in the ride-hailing world, they they might settle, but they will never actually, you know, it doesn't lead to some kind of universal classification. Um, and, and so, and it, so it's, it's limited yeah. in its impact. Whereas this basically took, you know, a ruling that happened in the Supreme Court um, a year ago, two years ago. Um, and, and it's basically, you know, codifying it into law mm-hmm. so that, you know, you don't have to kind of go case by case and yeah. court by court. Um, and this is like, no, actually, this is an issue. It's showing up in the court. Let's make it, you know, let's make it the rule. Um, would there be a, a possibility that this could be challenged, um, you know, I don't know, in federal court? Or is it, would it just be sort of seen as a California thing? It would be seen as a California thing and that would apply to the California workers. You know, federal is coming out with its own right. set of um, conditions around you know, ride healing, for example, and saying that, no, they are not employees. So, you know, this is where, like, the you know, the state versus the federal rights kind of thing comes into play. Um, okay. But I do think in terms of challenges, you know, will it, you know, will it pass? It seems very strong. Will it pass with a bunch of carve-outs along, like, further carve-outs along the way? You know, there's a lot of lobbying happening right now. There's a lot of pressure on policymakers. So what will pass, I think, is the question. I mean, in New York, I think there have been various efforts to kind of um, try to legislate around this issue. Um, do, do you think that California's bill could become a model for other states? New York has um, has been another place where um, you know, Uber and, and these other sort of um, massive gig economy companies have been allowed to flourish with very minimal regulation so far. Yeah, which which very much was the case here, too. I mean, this is why this is so edgy um, and, you know, so intense is because California is also home to a lot of these technology companies and has been, they've been given a lot of space to thrive and innovate and nobody wants to disrupt and, you know, be that person that kind of stopped a lot of these, you know, huge changes kind of going on. But it it actually was, you know, New York that put together some of the first restrictions, like New York City was the one who put the first restrictions on ride hailing, you know, through Mm -hmm. a cap and then actually kind of coming up with the space wage formula and like I you know I think we're on the heels of that it's like okay let's let's not just stop there and taking it to this even like something like an AB5 would go beyond you know just um, just wages like it would really 
attempt to kind of get to all the kind of worker issues and worker conditions mm-hmm. in one go. If something like that, you know, something like that passes in the form that it looks like today, like, of course, like what a model. <laughs> but, you know, let's see what happens. Um, but yeah, I do think that it would really pave the way for, for other states to see that you can do this and, you know, make it okay to do something like this. That was Samo Ahid of the UCLA Labor Center. In a story close to our hearts here at Belabored, the last couple of weeks have seen some big actions by journalists' unions. First, the workers at Vox Media, organizing with the Writers Guild of America East, ratified their contract on June 14th, but not without management dragging their feet first to recognize the union and then to bargain with the workers. Though they won, as friend of the show Ari Paul reports at FAIR, generous wage floors, 16 weeks of paid parental leave, 10 days of bereavement leave, other leave provisions, cost of living increases, and perhaps most interestingly, a provision granting workers a cut of the profits on media they produce that Vox later sells to third parties. There are even new protections against the laying off of staffers in order to replace them with freelance labor, a common and well-grounded fear in the media industry, end quote. They've also won diversity protections that will serve to push the media company to hire reporters and freelancers from diverse backgrounds, meaning fewer of those all-white man front pages we're so used to. But in order to get all those provisions, Vox workers had to have a walkout. On June 6th, the Vox workers walked off the job, tweeting pictures of their empty offices. Even workers who had early on publicly opposed the union made statements to press about the need for a fair contract. Days after the walkout, the company agreed to the workers' demands. And then the Vox workers sparked another walkout, this time at BuzzFeed, where a bright BuzzFeed yellow Scabby the Rat joined them in the street. The BuzzFeed walkout included workers at offices in New York, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and Los Angeles. BuzzFeed employs more than 200 journalists, even after some very recent, very visible layoffs. And the union, this time organized with the News Guild, has been struggling with management over the size of the bargaining unit, a common tactic and one we've heard about a lot, particularly in these media unions. In a recent piece for New Labor Forum, I noted that over 20 media outlets had organized since 2015, something I think we can properly now call a wave. And in the time since I wrote that piece, which, well, it had quite a long lead time, Another 10 or so have come out as uh, in the middle of a union drive. Journalists, who, many of whom were taught early on to compete with one another for bylines, realized that the precarity of our work meant it made more sense to join together. Some of these unionized shops have been new digital-only outlets like Vox and BuzzFeed, but others are venerable old publications like the Los Angeles Times, The New Yorker, and The New Republic, for which I have written some labor stories, including an uptown p- upcoming piece on the Lordstown plant. For young people coming of age in the post-2008 era, they've realized that the power of personal branding can only take you so far. For more than that, you need to organize. And to see the workers taking action, and at least in the case of Vox, succeeding in bringing management to the table, is a good sign for the future of the industry, particularly when the workers show that they are thinking about what it takes long-term to produce good work, often much more than management is. The National Labor Relations Board is waging an epic battle of mice and men, or rather, rat and men. In one corner, we have Trump's ultra-conservative NLRB appointees. They're taking aim at the perennial punching bag of the labor bar. 
In the other corner, it's a giant inflatable rodent known affectionately as Scabby the Rat. He's been a totem at many a picket line, mostly as a strategic symbol of labor exploitation deployed against a company known to use non-union or scab labor, hence the name. Scabby has been a trusty sidekick at rallies of building trades unions in the New York area for many years, and last week on Staten Island, he took his perch across from a ShopRite construction site, which is known to be using non-union construction contractors for the job. But the NLRB's general counsel swooped in to crack down on the rally, claiming that Scabby violated federal rules about picketing actions. According to Bloomberg Law, the NLRB was seeking a temporary restraining order against the Construction and General Building Laborers Local 79, which would bar all protests against the ShopRite stores for five days, including the use of inflatables. This dispute is being duked out in court, as the NLRB's general counsel, Peter Robb, seeks an injunction to halt the union's protests at the site. The demonstration itself is a low-key affair, with union activists standing alongside Scabby and passing out leaflets, just telling pedestrians to urge the parent company, Mannix, to hire union labor rather than the low-wage workers they are currently employing. The crackdown from the NLRB is an extraordinary intervention and speaks to the general ideological bent of Trump's NLRB. Rob has been dredging up older cases for the express purpose of overturning Obama-era precedents. Scabby has long been the nemesis of the GOP, dating back to the Bush administration. Rob has another pending case against Scabby, this one involving a separate demonstration organized by the IBEW in Philadelphia back in 2017. In both these cases, Rob's argument is essentially that picketing these businesses violates labor law because they are not direct employers of the union workers. They are considered secondary, which the NLRB has often seen as neutral third parties who are merely trying to get on with business. A secondary boycott by this logic harms a business that ostensibly had nothing to do with the union's labor dispute with the main employer. Now, if the NLRB prevails, it would deal a blow to all sorts of solidarity-related striking activity and would severely limit workers and unions' rights to engage in things like solidarity strikes and... An aggressive crackdown on Scabby would limit secondary strike activity and would severely limit the ability of workers and unions to engage in things like solidarity strikes. Protests would be limited essentially to employees that were directly involved in a union labor dispute. Tamir Rosenblum, a lawyer for Local 79, argues that this is simply a matter of free speech and that workers are simply engaging in their First Amendment right to speak out against a local crooked employer. When an employer files a charge, this one's filed under Section 8B4 of the National Relations Act, which prohibits what co coercive behavior picketing toward a secondary employer. So that would be any business entity is considered an employer. Um, the primary employer is the one that is actually um, employing the the labor. Mm -hmm. So in, in this case, this case, for example, it's it's not Shoprite or this entity. Um, Mannix Family Markets um, that is employing construction workers, but it's um, certainly our view as Local 79 that the financial arrangements that get made, that in this case it's like a leaseback situation, um, so that when the construction happens, they're, they've been you know, privy to it, part of, the, part of it, and um, you know, we want to comment on that. So that would be considered a secondary because they don't actually directly employ the labor. So the the National Relations Act provides that we could not, for example, put up a picket line and try to stop ShopRite's grocery store employees from going to work for ShopRite. 
that would be considered not speech. It would be considered you know, traditional picketing. Um, there's law that says it's not pure speech. Um, it has a coercive content, so it's not as privileged as, as just peaceful, expressive talk. Um, but th- what they're doing here is um, completely contrary to existing law, taking the position that pretty much any messaging on a secondary subject, and I don't know how they're going to frame it in their briefs, is illegal unless it fits within the four corners of this case called DiBartolo, um, which says you can leaflet at a, actually at a strip mall. <laughs> so um, I don't know if they're going to just actually come up with something that just would seem to me like just blatantly not what the, even the statute says, which is that you just can't offer secondary commentary, or they're going to say that they deem any activity at out in the streets that is not an infl- a leaflet is picketing. Well, how did that sort of arbitrary standard of the piece of paper come about? Again, we they, we have not seen their paper yet in terms of what they're going to file in court. We've seen a, a complaint, which I think they may have sent you, mm-hmm. which is just basically what they're going to argue within the National Relations Board context. And um, it doesn't offer a theory, right? It just basically condemns everything we did except the leaflet. Um, So in terms of what the standard is, I mean, the standard is what the law is right now. And there's actually the Obama-era board decisions specifically hold that bannering and inflated balloons and all that are not incidents of picketing, of, of being a course of picket line, which makes sense. It's nothing coercive about a balloon. In terms of what the theory they're going to offer, I, I have no I, I might have no idea, but I, I, I substantially struggle to imagine what it's going to be. I, it's either going to be, as I said, that you just can't offer secondary messaging out in the streets unless it's the eight and a half by 11 leaflets, or it's going to be just a total reinvention of the meaning of the word pickets. It basically, if it comes out of labor's mouth, everything would be considered a picket line if it's not an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. So what, what I take it as saying is, is, is like in a bigger context is the following. He has written, Rob has in his most recent memo about the inflated rat, which is about use of it on a construction site, that he views labor speech as commercial. So it's not privileged to the same protections under the First Amendment that other forms of speech. For example, the Supreme Court has held that um, the Klan can burn crosses in Virginia, cannot presume that that is coercive, right? Actually, in Virginia, people can gather to burn crosses and the state can't consider it presumptively coercive. The Phelps, uh, Snyder v. Phelps case, um, the Westboro Baptist Church goes out and protests um, the sexual preferences of a, a fallen Marine, so uh, um, in, in, I think it was from Iraq, um, that the Supreme Court has held. It's upsetting. It's just completely controversial. It's, it's fine. You're allowed to do that. They want to say that we have fewer, less rights than that. Is this intervention from Rob, was it something that you were expecting for this workplace action? I mean, were you kind of anticipating, in light of what he's already, memorandums that he's already issued? I, I was not expecting it at all. I mean, I thought that even there was an effort to condemn the rat as a signal picket under the Bush 
administration. And as sort of cockamamie as that was, it basically argued that, you know, construction workers have this sort of like electro-neurological reaction to seeing the inflated rat and they can't think clearly and they immediately turn around and go home. Um, there's no biological evidence for that. And it's absurd. But they didn't actually ever try to go to court to get an injunction about it because they realized they had to first go through the National Labor Relations Board. And even under the Bush era board, they couldn't get the National Labor Relations Board to hold that that was the uh, you know effective reaction of construction workers or workers in general to seeing that kind of balloon. Mm-hmm. Here, they have the law is now clear. The National Labor Relations Board has held that the rat is protected free speech and they are going to court. And they are going to court not just to suppress use of the inflated rat, but the cockroach, the bullhorn, the chanting, all of it, all of it. It is completely, in my view, it's, it's Orwellian. It's, it's Orwellian. It's like literally people of your ilk cannot express messages on this subject in public space. That was Tamir Rosenblum of Local 79. If you've been to a hospital lately, chances are the person you've interacted with the most is not the doctor, but the nurse. Nurses are in demand. They deliver most of the care in our healthcare system, and it seems we can never get enough of them. For years, in fact, analysts have warned of an impending nursing shortage. It'd lead to overburdened hospitals and a crisis of care. And it is true, we do have a crisis in our healthcare system. It's underfunding and understaffed, and it's fueling the public campaign for Medicare for All. Organized nurses, in fact, have been some of the only proponents of the initiative in the healthcare sector. Nonetheless, nurses on the front line say that the idea of a shortage doesn't really tell the whole story. It's true that many hospitals are short-staffed, but this is less about the supply of nurses than deliberate management decisions intended to suppress labor costs and overstretch the existing workforce. So there are more systemic gaps at work. As the country begins a serious debate on the future of healthcare, labor advocates say that bringing single-payer online should involve elevating nursing care as a cornerstone of the public healthcare infrastructure. That means ensuring that there are first enough nurses to deliver quality care for all, and second, that those nurses have the quality jobs that they deserve. I talked to Linda Eichen, director of the Center for Health Outcomes and Policy Research at the University of Pennsylvania, about nurse workforce issues the crisis in nursing care, and what mandatory staffing ratios, such as the kind they have in California, could do for the workforce nationwide. Every time there's like a national, like a nurse appreciation day, like there's all these stories coming out about like nursing shortage, and no one seems to really connect the dots. If you had the ear of like the, the most progressive um, legislators in Washington right now who are actually thinking seriously about putting in place a single-payer system, you know, for instance, any of the 2020 presidential candidates who have seriously proposed this, how would you incorporate like a labor component into that that would ensure this profession is properly um, compensated, but also that, you know, working conditions are improved such that um, it becomes a sustainable career and there's like a, you know, there's there's a there's a sort of a career pathway and a, and a supply chain of nurses. Well, but I see, I think we have that now because we've, you know, the, the market in our country has solved some of those things because mm-hmm. nurses have, are, you know, uh, nurses could always be better paid, uh, but uh, nurse salaries are the highest in the world in the U.S., which is not just because we have higher salaries overall, they're higher relative to many other occupations. And I think nurses... Um, 
you know, have career pathways now, and, and that's the development of advanced practice nurses with nurse practitioners has been what's been so attractive to recruit all of these people into nursing. I mean, people are coming in that ha- already have a university degree in another field because they see, okay, I, c- I can be an RN, and being an RN is good, and I could do it for a career, but I could also be a nurse practitioner. And so I guess what I'm suggesting is those are not the things that are so important, but the the valuing of nurses by the health system and creating an environment that allows them to be productive is very important. Um, for example, Toyota, you know, has a reputation for making cars that uh, don't break down. We sort of moved into healthcare consulting, and their advice they gave to the healthcare industry is: you don't have your eye on supplying the line that keeps your productivity high and your the uh, product that you're producing, which is patient care, excellent. And the line in healthcare is nursing. And so they tried to convince hospitals in particular that they had to focus more on making nurses efficient and effective. And that's not what goes on in hospital environments. Environments in which nurses work are chaotic. There are many operational failures. There you know, not enough supplies, equipment is broken, Um, the uh, dietary department is not delivering the right meals, and all these things that happen at the patient interface, nurses are spending all their time solving constantly. Yeah. There's no reason for that. Right. And 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 many workplace hazards as well. I mean, there are injuries. Oh, yes. And really bad things are happening. Uh, Nurses are getting hurt. A major part of that is that there are often not enough nurses there. And that's the beginning of the chaos right there. Right. And so, uh, you know, more attention to what would constitute safe nurse staffing uh, and trying to have some kind of reasonable either industry standard or if the industry doesn't respond, some other kind of regulatory standard that's at the heart of why we don't have safer care in hospitals is that there are not enough nurses to really have an efficiently working system. And we have so many uh, readmissions. Some categories of Medicare patients, those with heart failure, for example, 20% of them are coming back to the hospital within 30 days. And every time an elderly person comes back to the hospital, they have a bigger and bigger chance of never living independently again. So they're very big risk of this going on besides wasting a lot of money. And nurses are at the heart of that. So I think having enough nurses, and of course, we haven't even really talked about nursing homes. And we really have a desperate situation still going on in long-term care. It's been going on for decades, and it's not any better. As a matter of fact, it's getting more complicated because now with the shorter length of stay in hospitals, hospitals are discharging Patients that are very needy into long-term care facilities, and they have very few nurses and really no doctors to speak of. You know, the nurse workforce is largely women, has a fairly, it's it's much more diverse, um, I would say, than, than the workforce of doctors currently. Um, and in a way, they sort of reflect the communities that they serve um, a lot more yes. than other medical practitioners. 
you know, what do you think the significance of that is in terms of just providing equity to this labor force that it seems like so often ignored and or like just sort of actively suppressed? <laughs> well, I think it is very important. I mean, it's a wonderful observation that you made that nurses do more reflect uh, the demographics of their uh, communities and they're much more engaged in the community activities of all kind and that kind of gives them this sense of immediacy in trying to solve some of these problems that's not always apparent in the larger healthcare system. It just seems like it, this is kind of like a civil rights issue as well as just a healthcare issue as well. I mean, well, it's also an economic issue because these nursing jobs are really creating the middle class and you know every night you turn on the news you can listen to you know what number of middle class jobs well healthcare in our country is the engine behind the growth of middle class jobs and you know if you just ask uh you know what is the benefit of you know having more nurses well one of them are all the economic benefits of upward mobility for uh, the nursing workforce that, as you say, is very diverse. It's coming from different um, sectors of the uh, nation. Uh, many nurses are first-generation university graduates, and they're all coming up by their bootstraps and pulling up their families and uh, contributing economically to their communities. Um, and so we we have that um, health care engine uh, that's very good for the economy and for, you know, creating good jobs for the middle class. So if patients need more nurses and it's good for the economy, why are we rationing nursing care? Right. And, um, and of course, you know, I guess like nursing is um, sort of like teaching in a way. I mean, at least for now, these jobs are not going to be automated away anytime soon, or at least we should hope not. So, um, you know, thinking of just structural changes in the workforce. and That's a very important issue because I can't think of a single technology, and I've asked so many people if they could, that reduced the need for nurses. Every single technology that we introduce in healthcare requires more nurses. Yeah. Just the um, electronic health record alone requires more nurses to make it work. Yeah, for sure. I would imagine that there are probably more tasks that surgeons perform that can be outsourced to technology than, like, you know, things that yeah, nurses definitely. do on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> I mean, you, yeah. you can have a robot do stitches. Like, it's not a big deal. But, like, you can't have, like, you know, you can't provide, you know, nursing, like, pediatric nursing care from, like, you know, a screen. <laughs> Right. And so it just doesn't fit into the manufacturing model that, you know, some managers are interested or are used to thinking about. There's just, we have never found a replacement for a nurse, but nurses do replace other people. And so when they work upstream, uh, they're freeing up doctors to uh, take on more complicated tasks, which doctors want to do, by the way. I mean, it just seems counterintuitive as well. Like, you know, Right, like you were saying, like doctors, why wouldn't doctors want nurses handling a lot more of the stuff that they are currently overwhelmed with if, if there can be a better distribution of labor? But I guess no one really yes. wants well, to. Well, they do. That. You know, this is a funny thing um, because practicing physicians that are really taking care of patients want more nurses and nurse practitioners. And that's why so many are being hired because we wouldn't see hospitals hiring 
now literally thousands and thousands of nurse practitioners if doctors didn't want them. So there's a big difference between organized medicine stance on some of these issues like modernizing nurse practice X and what practicing physicians think. One of my um, things that I give an example of all the time, which is just really ridiculous in a system that costs as much as ours, but nurses spend a huge amount of time hoarding pillows because there are never enough pillows that are provided um, by um, the equipment uh, part of the world uh, to physician patients. And Mm -hmm. so if you have a surgery patient, often you need six pillows and there's only one or two pillows on a bed. And this has been true forever. (laughs) And so literally nurses are hoarding pillows and searching for pillows and spending an inordinate amount of time in a multi-billion dollar business. Yeah. Ridiculous. (laughs) <laughs> they can they can get like you know awesome laser beam like technology equipment to, like just no pillows um um no this reminds me of like you know in like many developing nations people bring their own bedding to the hospital with them <laughs> like people will start doing that now like people just sort yeah. of um, bring their own couch pillows but yeah. you know this idea about the nursing shortage it it's I think it's really important to try to. Uh, educate people about that because it's such a diverting issue. It kind of diverts everything from what the main problem is now in nursing. I mean, I think people have these preconceived notions. Why would you want to be a nurse? It's such hard work. Uh, You know, probably there's a lot of burnout. Probably people don't stay in the field, but it's really not true. Um, It's a very attractive field, but when you allow employers to say, uh, we don't have enough nurses at the bedside because there aren't enough. That allows them to cast the blame other places besides themselves. So when hospitals say to me we have a nursing shortage, I say, look at your hospital and ask yourself why nobody wants to work there, because there are plenty of nurses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's important that we don't allow this uh, myth that we have a nursing shortage to divert attention from what really needs to change, which is we're not funding enough positions for nurses and we're not attending to the workplace. So they have a, you know, where they could be reasonably successful providing high quality care without burning out and being afraid uh, every second of the day that some catastrophe is going to happen. That was Linda Aiken, director of the Center for Health Outcomes and Policy Research at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. I also talked to Koki Giles. She is a registered nurse in Maine and vice president of National Nurses United about what she experiences every day at work and the need for safe staffing levels. In Maine, we primarily, in our hospital, they primarily do 12-hour shifts. That's a long time to, that's a long time to work with that type of um, staffing. And, you know, when you went into nursing to help people and to be a caregiver, and you find you can't do that, it, it, it's, a, it's very frustrating. Yeah. And th- there are other options out there, and that's what we see happening. Sometimes they try to um, redistribute the labor so that they can kind of like move down the workforce chain and, and kind of distribute more to, to like physician's assistants and, and other frontline yes. personnel yes. and not nurses, not registered nurses. Correct, correct. We have to be very vigilant because there are many times that they're taking – what is a nurse, what are nursing jobs, and they're saying, well, 
you know, a, a CNA can do that or an LPN or an LVN. Somebody with less skill can do that. And, and it's primarily just to save money. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, um, that's at higher risk to the patient, I guess, ultimately. Um, of course it is, yeah. yeah. Because because those other levels do not have assessment. Mm -hmm. They are not, you know, they're not qualified or trained to be, to, to assess uh, changes in condition. And, you know, I think, and I'll be, I'll be honest with you, I think if they could take the profit, even on a non-profit facility, if they could take the profit out, of healthcare, uh, I think you would find a big improvement. The patients would receive the excellent care without mm -hmm. having to worry who's, who's spending the money and who isn't. I've been a nurse 40 years, and the amount of management in these positions compared to what they used to be is incredible. I have never been management. I don't know if there's a big need for that, but it just seems that we have so many managers that don't deliver care it's 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 why couldn't we have some of these as our regular you know our caregivers right like you can't hire you can hire like 10 nurses with the salary of a single administrator it's, or something exactly yeah exactly and, you know and my thing is yes and maybe they don't have as many as we do direct care people but the the amount of money that they can demand is huge compared to what the nurses can. I guess you're speaking about Medicare for all. Oh boy, I certainly am. And I understand that there's a, a lot of the, you know, administrators, the, the uh, pharmaceutical insurance companies are all against that because that is going to make a difference on how much money they pay those people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They, and I have no idea what those figures are, so please don't ask me. Um, but I do know that there, there would be a limit to some of that rather than just um, whatever they can, whatever they can get out of, out of there. But you should not, in the state of Maine, and I'll just use a small rural hospital, a uh, hundred miles north of Bangor. The CEO made three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year for like a sixty-bed hospital. Mm -hmm. And I guess my question is, I, I just, I don't understand that. That was Koki Giles, NNU Vice President and Registered Nurse. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Arrgh! I wish I'd written that. Last episode, you heard me talking to Will Strong of Autonomy about how we should all work less. Now, a new study indicates that maybe we're right. At The Guardian, Nicola Davis wrote a piece titled, Just One Day of Work a Week Improves Mental Health, study suggests. The study takes a bit of a different tack from the less work research we discussed last time. Davis writes, quote, Unemployment has previously been linked to poorer mental health, with experts suggesting that part of the reason could be that work offers benefits including time structure, social contacts, and a sense of identity. But there was a key question left unanswered. Nobody seemed to have said how much of it you need to get those benefits, said Brendan Burchell, a co-author of the research from the University of Cambridge. 
the idea has been, of course, that works benefits are somehow larger than, you know, just the big one being able to pay the bills. Yet the idea that work itself was the thing that people wanted to do with their time always seemed a bit of a stretch from the existing research. And now Birchall and his co-authors in the journal Social Science and Medicine have tested that theory out. Davis writes, the benefits for mental health of several hours of paid employment a week were also seen for women and men who are not working because of factors such as disability, parental leave, retirement, or caring responsibilities. Further analysis of those employed suggested that, in general, working fewer than the standard full-time hours of 36 to 40 hours a week was not linked to worse mental health or well-being. She continues, the authors say while measures such as universal basic income have been put forward as a way to tackle a future in which many jobs are expected to be done by machines, the research reveals the importance of sharing limited employment around to help safeguard mental health and supports ideas such as shorter working weeks. It is much, much better to reduce the working hours for everybody than it is to have an increase in unemployment for some people, said Birchall. The authors, of course, encouraged much more research along these lines, and I'm sure we here at Belabored would love to hear more. My pick for ARG is called The Non-White Working Class in Slate. It's by Henry Graybar. So when you think of Youngstown, Ohio, what do you picture? You probably picture one of those Rust Belt towns that has become a typical campaign stop for people like Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Classic images of rundown burbs and shuttered factories, emblematic of the white working class trope that has become the most coveted portion of the electorate for many politicians. But Graber's article takes a campaign cliche and turns it on its head. He points out simple demographics that dispel the myth of the white working class in towns like Youngstown. Why? Because Youngstown is a black town. He writes, quote, Youngstown is not white. In contrast to the largely white Mahoning Valley, for which it often serves as an unthinking stand-in, the city itself is 43% black and majority minority. The mayor is black. In more than a dozen interviews with Youngstown's black community, I could not find anyone who knew a black Trump supporter, let alone was one. But not all of the people I talked to voted for Hillary Clinton either. What accounts to the mirage of the working class that features so prominently in Trump's nostalgic fantasy of a lost America, an America that he wants to make great again? What gets flattened in the narrative of Republican victories in Trump country? Why do we erase black workers from this narrative of working class America in decline, especially when the rise and fall of black blue collar labor in America is much more dramatic and more tragic in many ways than the decline of the white working class communities that live alongside them? Graybar depicts, through the memories of locals, how the black American dream was spawned in factories like Lordstown and was then extinguished over the course of a generation with the help of neoliberal policies that undermined the social fabric of many small cities, particularly urban communities of color. He writes, quote, Whatever went wrong for the white working class here went even worse for their black counterparts. Blacks were hurt by job sprawl that saw work opportunities move from the heart of town into distant suburbs, where housing racism kept black workers out. They were hurt by the racist legacy of the unions here, which left them with worse jobs than their white peers and made them more likely to be dismissed first when downsizing occurred. They were hurt by urban renewal and the wave of declining home values, public services, amenities, and school quality. They were stuck in the city as white flight hollowed out their neighborhoods. They were hurt by the whiteness of the county Democratic Party, which they say has shown little interest in the city's problems, unquote. 
As much as white voters here may have pivoted to Trump in 2016, his victory in Youngstown was also a product of black votes staying home. They weren't apathetic, but disillusioned at what they perceived as white apathy toward their community's social and economic struggles, as their previously solid working-class stronghold began to crumble. Graybar quotes Mayor Jamel Tito Brown, Democrats, he said, need to give a sense of reality, not false hope. The reality is we have tough economic issues, but in a place like Youngstown, Ohio, we don't just want a campaign speech every three and a half years, unquote. Voter turnout, especially for midterm elections, is predictably dismal in Youngstown, and black community organizers have felt frustrated that Trump has so readily capitalized on the lack of motivation and general disdain for politics, along with the material constraints that keep many black people from voting. Graybar quotes Helen Youngblood, head of the Ask Me local, recalling a vexed conversation with a friend about why they can't get people to vote. Her colleague tells her, Helen, when you get up in the morning and you don't know if your baby is going to have milk, then your priority of the day isn't getting out to vote. Poverty, she reasoned, was crushing young people's will to participate in the political process, unquote. Oddly, despite the downward spiral that Youngstown's black community has experienced in recent years, they seem in a way to have maintained some modicum of hope, resignation even, about what their hometown has become. And they're still there. They're not fleeing. In a way, their resilience cuts against the image that we see in the media of the Rust Belt's decline. Usually that's framed as an epidemic of white despair, a world of depression, addiction, social alienation, and idleness, as old community institutions like churches and unions fall away and nothing emerges in their place. An elder named Sybil West, who has lived and organized in Youngstown for three generations, takes the long view on the so-called white cultural crisis. She says, quote, It hurts them because they're not used to cutting corners. Opioids, suicides, people can't figure out how to survive. West goes on to note that black people like her, quote, have always had to live our lives on plan A and plan B. We may not have had much, but we learned how to plan. We're a race that was forced to live with less. So maybe we need a plan for 2020? Maybe that's the lesson of Youngstown. Don't put too much stock in the American dream. Make do with what you have while you still have it. But just because you've been forced to live with less doesn't mean you should settle for less. Next year, Youngstown will be going to the polls again along with the rest of the nation to deliver what will likely end up being a referendum on the Trump administration. But if Trump proved anything, it's that our political system is still capable of surprising us, for better or worse. And maybe things can turn around for a small town like Youngstown when the right people speak up. And usually, those are the people who don't make it into the headlines. And that is all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks again to Natasha for making us sound good. Please donate to support Belabored on the Descent Magazine website, descentmagazine.org. If you'd like to get in touch with us about labor actions that you're involved in, any recent scabby the rat sightings in your neighborhood, if you're living in Youngstown and you want to tell us what's really going on in your neck of the woods, or any other Rust Belt town that often gets distorted in the media coverage, let us know on Twitter at hashtag Belabored. Or you can contact us by email email at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Talk to you in another two weeks. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.